We are intrigued by the last words of famous people. They say when Marie Antoinette was being led to the guillotine, she accidentally stepped on the foot of her executioner, and her last words were, pardon me, sir, I meant not to do it. Buddy Rich, the legendary jazz drummer, died shortly after undergoing surgery for a brain tumor. The story goes that while being prepped, the nurse asked him a bunch of questions, and one of them was, is there anything you can't take? His response was the last thing he said, yeah, country music. That's a good one. (laughs) The problem with famous last words is that they're often totally unprovable, right? It's really hard to find actual sources that are reliable on most of those last words you see out there. But that isn't the case with Jane Austen, beloved author. Her sister, who was at Jane's bedside as she passed into eternity, uh, made a record of it. She wrote an account in a letter to another family member explaining what happened. Now, most lists of famous last words will include Jane's because they're provocative when you read them on the list. Her sister, Cassandra, wrote, when I asked her if there was anything she wanted, her answer was she wanted nothing but death. And uh, so on the list, it'll always say that I want nothing but death. That kind of severity may get clicks on internet lists, but those weren't Jane's final words. After that, the letter goes on, Jane said, after I want nothing but death, God grant me patience, pray for me, oh pray for me. Our text tonight is the beginning of Jacob's last words. We've spent a lot of time with Jacob as a character in this book. We'll find him on his deathbed. And there he proclaims God's power, foretells the future, and blesses the sons who will take up the torch of God's redemptive work. We begin in verse 28. Now Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and his lifespan was 147 years. So the famine had been over for more than a decade. Why stay in Goshen? Why stay in Egypt when we see how focused this family was on being back in the land God had promised to them? It's not that they didn't want to be back. We'll see that it is the absolute focus of Jacob's mind. And yet there they stayed in Goshen year after year. The only answer is that God led them to stay where they were. And despite their sort of emotional and traditional and uh, prophetic pull toward Canaan, Jacob's family obeyed when God said, stay where you are. Verse 29 says, when the time approached for him to die, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, If I found favor with you, put your hand under my thigh and promise me that you will deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I rest with my ancestors, carry me away from Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Hold there. Jacob in this part speaks as if Joseph is the superior. It's sort of surprising. And it's not because he's just impressed with, the, with Joseph's upward mobility. It's not just because Joseph has become a powerful ruler, although he has. In these texts, Jacob is transferring the leadership of the family to Joseph. You see, the head of the clan was the person responsible for burial arrangements, and so he calls Joseph here, and, and this is all part of his, his desire to transfer clan leadership to Joseph and his line. And we'll see next that Joseph is going to get the birthright. We've seen birthrights before uh, in the book of Genesis, and that's what's happening here. Jacob's request to his son, the savior of the family, was this, deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. 
Uh, it's one of those lovely words that keeps coming up in Genesis, hesed. At the end of his life, Jacob had to rely on hesed, that merciful, covenant, compassionate, affectionate love where a stronger party uh, helps out a weaker party, uh, not because it's owed to them, but because of loyalty and love. Uh, We've talked about that before in other studies. Jacob could no longer rely on his wits He could no longer rely on strategy. He could no longer rely on strength. He could no longer rely on wealth or popularity or merit. Only Hesed. That was going to be his only hope to to get this final wish uh, made true. Uh, he, He would have to be carried there. He would have to be taken there after his death by a faithful, compassionate member of his family. And, you know, luckily, that's exactly the kind of love our Savior has for us, for you and for me a loyal love that is guaranteed by God's faithfulness. He's the strong one. He's the one that looks on us, the weak ones, with, with compassion and tenderness and affection. And he says, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to uh, demonstrate my love to you. I'm not going to save you because I feel obligated to do it. I'm going to do so because I love you so much and because I have guaranteed it to you out of compassionate, merciful loyalty uh, from my heart to yours. As Jacob's life comes to a close, we see him following closely in the example of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. There's a lot of parallels in what's happening at the end of his life on his deathbed and what happened with them at the end of their lives. For all Jacob's wrestling, for all his wandering, at the end, we see that the work God began in Jacob was made complete. His words and his actions are in sync with the Lord, and we see that spiritual priorities are dominating his thoughts. Don't bury me in Egypt. Why? Because I need to get to the land that God wants me to be in. I want to be as, as, as involved and attached to the promises of God as I can possibly be. No, I can't live in Canaan ever again. He was too weak and too sick to make the trip back. But he says, I want at least my bones to be there because that's where God has called us. In 2018, Kara Nelson ran seven marathons in seven days on all seven continents. Yes, even Antarctica. Apparently, this is a thing that insane people do from time to time. It's called the World Marathon Challenge. And she did it. The thought of completing seven episodes of 26.2 miles each day of the week was daunting, she said. But as she came to the end of her final race, she said, I heard family and friends and strangers cheering me on. All I could see was the finish line. What a great sentiment. Jacob, we've seen, had a long marathon of a life, right? He had lived a long time. He logged a lot of tough miles over his 147 years, over a lot of different kinds of terrain, geographically, relationally, uh, when it comes to how blessed his life was, how much danger he was in. A lot, a long marathon uh, he'd been running. And now all he could see was the finish line, right? And of course, the Apostle Paul was the same way. He spoke to us uh, in terms about running and racing and finishing. Uh, He wrote about running well, about running to win in the Christian life, about finishing the race of life with our eyes set on the prizes of heaven. And he called us to have that kind of, of focus and dedication and attention to the end as we live out this life. When Jacob dies, the Egyptians will, will find are going to treat him like a king. I mean, it is like 
one of their own pharaohs die. They make a big, big deal out of it. And I was wondering, obviously there's a speculation, but don't you suppose, I mean, they, they let Joseph effectively do whatever he wants. He saved the entire nation. I mean, he's, he's the guy. They venerate Joseph. Don't you think that maybe Joseph could have pulled a few strings and built a pyramid for his dad? Or had some, you know, fantastic mausoleum with this great statue outside that people say, and here lies Jacob, you know, some, you know, Egyptian Taj Mahal that people would say, and here is the, here lies the father of the savior of Egypt. But Jacob wasn't interested in any of that. He didn't want a pyramid. He didn't want a mausoleum. He says, hey, go put me in the, in the tomb that we dug for ourselves, uh, there's a little tomb over there in Canaan that's a little nothing that, you know, just looks like a hole in the wall. Uh, that's where I want to be. His focus was, God wants our family in Canaan, and so I want to be in Canaan. But he wouldn't be able to get there on his own. He asked Joseph to carry him away from Egypt so he can rest with the family in the promised land. I was thinking about this, and each one of us, if the Lord tarries and, and doesn't take us home in the rapture, each one of us is headed toward the end of our lives where we will pass through death into eternity. And as human beings, we are helpless in death, right? You know, sometimes movies that deal with the afterlife try to portray the transition from this life to the next, uh, and the characters sort of have to navigate a passageway or, or some kind of road or some kind of staircase. Think of Coco or Soul or What Dreams May Come, right? Right? But the truth is, you're, you are helpless in death. You don't know the way to eternity, right? There's no, you know, GPS for that or anything like that. So what do we do? Well, the truth is, the Lord God has committed himself to carefully and tenderly carrying us through death into everlasting life. Listen to what he said in Isaiah 46, verse 4. I will be the same until your old age. I will bear you up when you turn gray. I have made you and I will carry you. I will bear and rescue you. That's a great verse for uh, someone on their deathbed. Verse 30 continues, Joseph answered, I will do what you've asked. And Jacob said, swear to me. So Joseph swore to him and then Israel bowed in thanks at the head of his bed. So this issue was completely essential to Jacob. He not only asked his son for a favor, he doesn't just say, hey, this is what I want, please do this for me. He requires Joseph to make a formal sworn promise to him. It's not that he didn't believe Joseph, but it's that important to, to Jacob. And we see how important this oath was because after Jacob dies, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he says, hey, I made this oath. And Pharaoh's like, hey, man, you got to fulfill your oath. I mean, he even realized how serious this uh, situation was and, and how bound Joseph was to do what he said here. We'll see that in chapter 50. Verse, uh, chapter 48 begins sometime after this. Joseph was told, your father is weaker. So he set out with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When Jacob was told, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And so we don't know how much time passed between chapters 47 and 48, uh, but this would be the last day of Jacob's life. In fact, uh, what we see in the next set of passages, we're going to split it over this time and the next time, it's the last few moments of Jacob's life, it seems. R. Kent Hughes points out, now, this is actually the first reference to illness in the Bible. There's been death, there's been injury, 
there's been execution, those sorts of things, and we've seen how sin has brought uh, physical problems into the world, physical deterioration for in old age in particular. We've seen that in Genesis. For example, Sarah, we saw, was no longer able to have children in her old age. Isaac had lost his eyesight. But this is the first sickness written about. Isn't it interesting that it didn't affect a pagan unbeliever? It didn't affect an enemy of God, but the patriarch himself, the standard bearer of faith, that the Lord said, yeah, you're going to get sick, and that sickness is going to claim your mortal life, and then you're going to be ushered into eternity where all sickness is dealt with forever and ever. No more sickness, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. But in this life, oh yes, uh, the people of God get sick and sometimes become terminally sick. Jacob's life had many memorable moments, which was the most remarkable, right? When you think of Jacob's life, which one stands out? We remember his incredible, uh, historic, passionate love for Rachel, right? He worked all those years, and it just seemed like a few days. That love which started with his, you know, super strong, chivalrous rolling of the stone off the well so her animals could, could drink, Of course, we can't forget the dream he had, Jacob's ladder, the angels ascending and descending there at Bethel. It's an incredible moment. Uh, we love his uh, scene of cosplaying, right? He, was, he, he did some cosplay of his brother Esau by putting goat skins on. That's a big moment in his life, not a great one, but pretty remarkable. But Derek Kidner writes this, out of Jacob's long career, Hebrews selects this as his outstanding act of faith. Many of you are familiar with the fact that there's a section in the book of Hebrews, we call it the Hall of Faith, that lists a bunch of characters from the Old Testament and, the, and some uh, f- wonderful examples of their faithfulness and their, and their belief in God. And, and when Hebrews was selecting individuals, one of the individuals it selects is, is Jacob. And to highlight his faith, it doesn't talk about Rachel, it doesn't talk about his ladder, it doesn't talk about any of those things, it doesn't talk about him wrestling with God, it talks about this moment where he uh, was about to die. This moment where he's so sick he can't get out of bed, where he's so old he can't make out the face of his grandsons. But even though he was physically weak, weaker than maybe he'd ever been, in fact, of course, weaker than he had ever been, Yet he had never been so spiritually strong. If you've been here through some of the studies in Jacob's life, uh, you've seen what kind of, kind of guy he was for a lot of his life, some of the mistakes he made, some of the, the problems he created for himself. And we are, we've never seen Jacob as spiritually strong as he is in these verses. And that's because real strength comes from the Lord. Jacob was never more of a blessing. He was never more of a conduit of God's truth or God's grace than he was in this moment on his deathbed. What a testimony to us of a life finished well and that no matter who you are, you can finish your life well before the Lord. Jacob's last day was a spiritual day. According to Hebrews 11, he was actively dying in this text. Not just like, well, he's kind of sick. It says, no, as he was dying, this is, <laughs> this is what he did. With his final breaths, he praised God. He spoke the word. He drew others toward the Lord. He said, hey, think about the Lord. Follow the Lord. Do what the Lord says. Joseph knows the end is coming for his dad, so he takes these two sons to see him. And it shows us his faith as well. You know, Joseph is a pretty remarkable character. I don't know if we always get him right sometimes, but... 
Um, but this is a remarkable moment of faithfulness and, and just choosing the Lord instead of the world. You know, Joseph had every worldly benefit and advantage that a person could have at his disposal. You understand that Joseph is the most powerful person, yes, other than Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's like, hey, you're in charge of everything. I'm just going to be doing whatever Pharaohs do when they're not in charge. So Joseph is the wealthiest man in the world. He's the most powerful man in the world. He, he is in charge of the most powerful kingdom of the world, right? I mean, he has, he, he's seen as a clairvoyant. He has fame. He has all of these things, he has every benefit a human being could possibly have from a worldly perspective, and yet uh, he says, you know what we need to do today? We need to spend some time with my dad and the Lord. I mean, his sons, they had every advantage. They had the best education, all the connections, an absolutely secure future from man's perspective. They did not need, from the world's perspective, to go and have this interview with old man Jacob. But what did Joseph do? He cleared their schedule so that he could go get the Hebrew family blessing because that's what mattered to him. He says, you know, of all the things I could be doing today as the leader of the ancient world, administrating all of these things and and holding court for Pharaoh, and we can't even imagine all the stuff he had to do. He says, clear my schedule. Boys, clear your schedule. We're taking a trip out to Goshen because that's where what we really need is the Hebrew blessing, the word of the Lord. Let's go and hear it. Verse three, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and he blessed me. He said to me, I'll make you fruitful and numerous. I'll make many nations come from you. I'll give this land as a permanent possession to your future descendants. You know, there's very little time to lose. A less spiritual person would say, yeah, yeah, dad, I know all of that. Let's, let's get to the blessing. We've got some, some T's to cross, some I's to dot. Uh, so can we, can we move it along? But that's not what Jacob does, and it's not what Joseph does. In these final moments, Jacob instead says, hey, first, why don't we remind ourselves of what God has said? Let's remind ourselves of God's word. What has he said? What has he promised? What has he prophesied? What has he commanded? Because that's what this family is all about. That's the most important message of the day, the word of God. Jacob's talk of God's appearance reminds us that Joseph for all that he accomplished and and for all the focus that we've had on him in the book of Genesis, Joseph experienced no theophanies. And when we pause to to think about that, it's kind of remarkable, especially for how all that he had to endure and and the dramatic way that God uh, wanted to use him and, and the things that he experienced, and yet no appearance from God for Joseph. Uh, no no spe- special visitation like Jacob had, had received, like Noah had received, like Abraham had received, like Isaac had received, none of that. He had no face-to-face talks with the Lord, and yet he was full of faith. Remember what Jesus said? He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us, by the way. Where we can be full of faith. We don't have to see Jesus face to face. We don't have to chase after some kind of sign. Sometimes people get caught up saying, I have to see a sign of the supernatural. And man, we need to be careful about that. It's not that God doesn't do supernatural things, He absolutely does. But we need to be really careful about getting drawn into this idea that I have to see these things. At one point, Jesus said, A wicked and perverse generation demands a sign. Blessed is he who has believed and not seen. Verse 5 says, your two sons born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are now mine. 
Ephraim and Manasseh belong to me, just as Reuben and Simeon do. Children born to you after them will be yours and will be recorded under the names of their brothers with regard to their inheritance. What's going on here is kind of a weird thing to do on your deathbed, right? Jacob is establishing Joseph's line as if he were the firstborn. Now, we know this is kind of a rough part of Jacob's life when it comes to uh, it comes to sort of how the Lord smooths our edges off. But we know that Jacob loved Rachel and did not love his other wives. And so in many ways, we see consistently he thought of Joseph as his firstborn, as his favorite. He was open with that. That's why the other brothers wanted to kill him and sold him into slavery. But among this growing family, challenges and problems might arise as Jacob passes into eternity and the next generation takes up uh, the life of faith. There were at least 52 grandsons in the family at the time of this passage. And now these two would have a place of prominence and leadership, and yet they don't really know the family. Joseph and his sons, they don't live with the family. They live in you know, in the capital with Pharaoh, in the palace with Pharaoh, and, and they all had to go together out to Goshen and make the road trip so that they could, uh, you know, have this talk. And can't you imagine one of the cousins starting to whisper, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're not bona fide, you know, right? I mean, they're like great uncle Ishmael. He, he's not, he doesn't really belong. They're like Uncle Esau and his boys. They're not really part of the Hebrew family. You know, their mom's an Egyptian, right? I mean, this is, this is something that would have happened. So Jacob formally adopts them on his deathbed. He says, no, 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 they, they are my sons now. Not just Joseph. He says, no, these two boys are my sons. And more than that, he's actually putting them in the place of his first two sons. The Hebrew literally reads there, like Reuben and Simeon, they will be to me. And 1 Chronicles 5 explains outright this was a legal transfer of birthright. That, that Reuben was done and gone. He forfeited the birthright, and so it was given to these two sons. By the way, Ephraim and Manasseh, they aren't little boys in this passage. They're in their early or mid-20s. They're somewhere between 20 and 28 years old. Uh, like Joseph, as I said, they didn't live with the rest of the family. They lived in the court of Pharaoh. Jacob referenced, we saw other children born to Joseph. Uh, the Septuagint records that Joseph had seven other sons in addition to these two oldest. Verse 7 says, When I was returning from Paddan Aram to my sorrow, Rachel died along the way, some distance from Ephrath in the land of Canaan. I buried her there along the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. It's kind of hard to know why Jacob brings this up here, except for it certainly drives home uh, his undying devotion to that one great love of his life. It's also possible that he was suggesting another reason why it was okay for him to adopt these sons, that, hey, Rachel would have had more sons, but she died prematurely, and so Ephraim and Manasseh are sort of taking the place of the boys uh, she would have had if she had lived. It's kind of hard to know exactly what his thinking was here. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? And Joseph said to his father, these are my sons God has given me here. So Israel said, bring them to me. I will bless them. Uh, Jacob's eyesight was really bad, we'll see. But this isn't just a senior moment. It's not a case of just being, you know, not able to see. 
this is a worship service. Hebrew says, man, he worshiped on his staff. And, this, and scholars will point out that all of the language being used by both Jacob and Joseph is very legal and very formal and, and ritualistic. And so this is a ritual blessing ceremony. And so his asking, who are these, is akin to when a pastor asks, who gives this woman to be married to this man? How about the guy that's standing right next to her? It's probably him right? Uh, you know, I've had to ask that question. It, it's, it's, it's that guy. He's standing right there, and he's holding her hand, right? But it's, it's part of the ceremony. Joseph said, these boys are gifts that God has given to me. And Jacob says, let me bless them. Okay, so in your Christian life, God wants to bless you with his gifts, right? That's very clear from the teaching of Scripture. What kind of gifts? Well, there's all sorts of gifts. Of course, there are the gifts of the Spirit. We learn those early on, especially if you are a a Christian uh, early in life or in a Christian home. You learn songs about that. But in Scripture, we find other gifts that aren't always the kind we would put on a registry for ourselves. If you've had the experience of, you know, creating a wedding registry or a baby shower registry, there's a bunch of things you don't put on there for yourself, right? Because you don't want them. Uh, and, and, you know, there are some things that in our human uh, perspective, in our flesh, we wouldn't really put on the list of gifts that we would like to be blessed with. For example, in Philippians 1, Paul tells us that suffering is a gift that God gives us. Uh, Jesus, of course, in the Beatitudes, right, what's that all about? That's all about how we are blessed with certain spiritual gifts that God sees fit to give us, blessing us with humility and blessing us with persecution and with insults and with mourning and hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? Like Jacob called Ephraim and Manasseh to himself, the Lord says, listen, come and let me embrace you so that I may bless you. And, and the blessing isn't according to your script, it's according to my script. Our part is to believe that God's gifts and the blessings he sees fit to give us are exactly what we need, and that more than that, they are what is best for us. When he blesses us with suffering, it's not because he takes pleasure in our struggle. It's not because he likes to hurt people. It's because, well, it's for all of the reasons that are explained and demonstrated in his word. Be glad and rejoice in the blessings of God because your reward is great in heaven. That's what the message of the New Testament is. Verse 10 says, Now his eyesight was poor because of old age. He could hardly see. Joseph brought them to him, and he kissed and embraced them. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, but now God has let me uh, even see your offspring. And Joseph took them from his father's knees and bowed them with his face to the ground. Jacob's faith is a great encouragement. Here he is excited about the fact that God has let him see Joseph's boys, even though physically he can barely see at all. It reveals the peace and the purity that's ruling in his heart. It reveals that, man, the Jacob that we've come to know, that guy's gone, and Israel is there in his place. And it reminds us that right now we see dimly only as a reflection in a mirror, right? And one day we're going to see our Savior face to face. One day everything's going to become clear. Now we know in part, then we will know fully. And I might not see or understand everything that the Lord is allowing in my life right now, but one day it's going to all be revealed as that work comes to its completion and all the pieces of redemption and God's grace fall into place and we see it was all part of the perfect work that He began, continued, and finished in our lives. 
Verse 13 says, Then Joseph took them both with his right hand, Ephraim toward Israel's left, and with his left hand, Manasseh toward Israel's right, and he brought them to Israel. But Israel stretched out his right hand and put it on the head of Ephraim, the younger, and crossing his hands, he put his left on Manasseh's head, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And then he blessed Joseph, and he said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys, and may they be called by my name. And the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, may they grow to be numerous within the land. And so the blessing comes out as a hymn of praise to this God who Jacob says is a shepherd redeemer. Jacob looked back on his life and remembered and considered and evaluated. And he says, man, God fed me. God led me. God shepherded me. He redeemed me. The reference to the angel is particularly poignant, isn't it? Jacob said, the angel redeemed me from all harm. And yet we know that quite notably, the angel permanently crippled Jacob at one point. He's like, man, you redeemed me from all harm. Like that time you mangled my hip and I never walked the same way again. Uh, But here at the end, Jacob understood that he had been a wayward sheep, that he had been obstinate, but that the shepherd kept watch day in and day out wherever he went. Wherever Jacob went, the shepherd was there watching and leading and protecting and helping and doing what needed doing. The shepherd kept leading. The shepherd kept providing all that this little lamb needed so that his life could be saved, so it could be bought back from sin, so that he could be redeemed and set apart. Our shepherd redeemer does the same. His intentions are the same. There at the end, there's kind of an interesting note. When Jacob talks about the boys becoming a numerous multitude, linguists explain that he uses words that mean something like, may they multiply like fish. What is one of God's intentions for us as his his sons and daughters, that we would be fishers of men, multiplying by the power of the gospel, which makes it possible for strangers to be adopted into the family of God, where the shepherd redeemer watches over us and leads us on. Verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand on Ephraim's head, he thought it was a mistake. He took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to put uh, to Manasseh's. Joseph said to his father, not that way, my father. This one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. So this is admittedly a sad moment in this tender scene. Jacob is in his dying moments The relationship between he and Joseph is a very special, very close one. But by all accounts, Joseph becomes frustrated. The language used implies powerful anger, one commentator says. And and the words used indicate that he put a firm grip on his dad's hand. And and I mean, he grabbed his dad to try to move his hand. Now, Joseph was used to being in charge, right? I mean, he said it and it was done. He wielded the scepter of Egypt for a long time. He was used to being the man with the plan, not in an arrogant way. He's a humble guy, but I mean, this is what he did. He made plans. He made executive decisions. He carried things out. He was used to being the one in the know, having the wisdom. And then as this blessing ceremony plays out, it's like he thinks, are you seeing this? You're doing it wrong. And he says, not that way, my father, you're doing it wrong. Now, the blessing was the same for both sons. You have to understand, it said, hey, it it says he blessed Joseph. 
And the blessing was the same for both sons. He didn't have one for Ephraim and one for Manasseh, but the symbolism of the right hand and the left hand would indicate a sort of magnitude of blessing, that there was a, a, a precedence, a, 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 a priority given to Ephraim over Manasseh. And even though on one level Joseph should have known better and trusted that the Lord was accomplishing all this, he thought, no, I know the way this should be done. And you know, sometimes God is going to do a work in our lives or in our generation or in our communities, whatever it is, and we will have a tendency to think, wait, Lord, not that way. You're not doing it the right way. Not those people. You're doing it out of order. This group, not that group. I know the way. I know who should receive the blessing, who should receive the priority, who should receive the right hand. But the Father does what the Father wills according to His perfect knowledge. We don't want to resist what God is doing because we think a different order is better or because we think, no, 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 this isn't the right way and we try to put our hands on it and try to force the hand of the Father to do what we think is best. Verse 19, but the Father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He too will become a tribe and he too will be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother will be greater than he. And his offspring will become a populous nation. So he blessed them that day, putting Ephraim before Manasseh. When he said, the nation of Israel will invoke blessings by you, saying, may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Ultimately, Manasseh would have the largest geographical territory in the promised land. But Ephraim would be the most central and become more prominent among the two. Jacob refused, it says. That's, That's a hard moment. He had to summon a little more strength to resist the manhandling of his son. Now, there's a wonderful irony here. Jacob had exploited his father's poor vision to trick him into giving the birthright to the younger brother himself. And now Jacob is the blind one, and Joseph is trying to keep him from giving the birthright to the younger son. What's the lesson? Well, one lesson is that God will do what he wills to do, right? Isaac didn't want to cooperate when God said Jacob would rule over Esau. Esau was Isaac's favorite, and so he tried to have a a birthright ceremony in secret without anyone else because he didn't want to cooperate with what God wanted to do. Jacob and Rebekah heard about it, and they weren't willing to trust that God would work it out on his own, and so they step in with their scheme that almost led to, you know, the brothers killing each other. Despite all of those bad plans so many years ago, God had his way. He said, Jacob is going to be the one that receives the birthright and the the blessing. Now Joseph is the one trying to stop God from doing what he wills, but God still has his way. And so this is a really great century-long object lesson that Genesis has preserved for us. God will do what needs doing in your life, even if it seems like he, quote-unquote, can't do it. He doesn't need our schemes. He doesn't need our shortcuts. He doesn't need us to suspend holiness or morality in order to accomplish his goals our way. Instead of striving, we should simply work to submit ourselves and trust him and be a part of what he's willing to do. Verse 21, Israel said to Joseph, look, I'm about to die. But God will be with you and will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Over and above what I'm giving your brothers, I'm giving you the mountain slope that I took from the Amorites with my sword and bow. So most commentators believe that this mountain slope is in fact the city of Shechem. And that makes sense because Jacob is stripping away inheritance from Reuben and Simeon and transferring it to Joseph. And in Joshua, the book of Joshua, we find that Joseph was buried in Shechem. 
Whether this reference to the sword and bow is pointing back to the slaughter of Shechem by Simeon and Levi or a different battle, we just aren't sure. For now, Joseph has clan leadership. Ultimately, the Lord's plan was to elevate Judah to the place of authority over Israel, but that was for another time. This text shows us the incredible testimony of a man finishing well. And let's not forget, he was a man who we didn't expect to finish at all, if we're honest, right? You read the beginning of Jacob's story and you're like, this guy, it's not going good. It's just not going good. And let alone in spiritual strength, right? In the Christian life, the end of the race matters. The way we finish well is not by standing in the way of what God wants to do in our lives or disagreeing with how God should do things, but instead we finish well by focusing our attention on the goal ahead. Because much more than our last words, what matters to us are those first words of the next life, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the goal. 